Welcome to this British Journal of Sports Medicine podcast. My name is Sean Carmody and I'm a doctor working in London. For the second time on the BJSM podcast, I have the pleasure of welcoming David Dunn, a performance nutritionist who's doing his PhD in digital health and dynamics of behaviour change at Liverpool John Moores University. In the last podcast, we spoke about managing safe weight loss and weight gain in boxing and rugby union. Today, our focus is on the travelling athlete. In your work with Oracle, David, you've supported athletes from a variety of American sports, including the NBA. Can you describe to the listener the unique travel demands these athletes face? Yeah, sure. Firstly, thanks a million for having me back on. Um, it's great to be back and discussing a new topic. And as you mentioned, the, the NBA does have very unique travel demands. So in a regular season, the athletes could compete in up 82 regular games uh, during the season and up to 110 games if they're fortunate enough to be involved in the playoffs and the finals. Now, with this volume of fixtures, some of these fixtures are going to have to fall back to back. Or So if, if, for example, if you are competing on a Friday in one city, you might then be competing in another city the next day on that Saturday evening. So there's, there's a huge amount of stress that comes with that. Um, players often find themselves in scenarios where they're going straight from the dressing room to the airport and they could be having their post-game meal in flight as they're making their way towards a new city for the next game. Um, as you can imagine, this, is, this means there's a lot of late arrivals, a lot of jumping through different time zones, which in itself can take its toll. And over the course of the season, it looks at it could be up to 45,000 air miles that these players will get through just for competition, not taking into consideration pre-season um, fixtures or training camps, additional holidays or any, any travel for family. Um, and again, that's 140, 150 hours in the air that, that really do, do need to be planned for and prepared for. So considering these extensive travel demands, what specific interventions might the clinician consider to mitigate the effects? I suppose firstly we know from research in the British Journal of Sports Medicine that these periods of travel are distinctly higher risk for athletes picking up upper respiratory tract infections. Um, so there's, there's a huge amount of considerations we want to we try bring in here to help mitigate this high risk period. The first thing I'd say to most practitioners is that you should walk through the whole process yourself from start to finish if you were in that athlete's situation. Um, what would it feel like? You know, what are you going to be exposed to? And then once you've walked through it and know what the journey itself will kind of feel like, I would break it down into its component parts. So I would, I would look at, you know, the different legs of the journey right the way from being at home to arriving at your destination. What are the different uh, things that you're going to be doing? Um, and I would look at each of those components and I would, you know, select what are the one or two key behaviours or one or two main things that if this athlete could do this, we'd be in a really good place. And then I'd sort of specify those key behaviours um, and start to look at what other things might come into play against them. So, you know, we know that behaviours themselves, um, they don't exist in a vacuum. They, they occur in a context and within a system of behaviours. If someone has finished a game and they've won, it's going to be, we're going to have a much greater chance of them doing what we ask them. They're in a good mood. Um, you know, spirits are high. However, if, if they've lost a fixture, you know, their mood might be a bit low, that additional emotion, emotional stress, you know, might mean they almost th uh, throw their toys out of the pram a little bit. So anything we ask them becomes an extra burden on that. So anything we do do, it should be very easy under all circumstances. 
um, for an athlete and just simple things. And I think the biggest thing is once we've broken it down into the different components and the different parts of travel, you know, instead of giving people um, a generic resource to say, here's your you know, travel tip sheet and here are the six things I'd love you to do throughout the course of this journey, actually break it down into the one or two things during the different areas of travel that I'd love you to do. And it becomes much more simpler, uh, much more simple, sorry, I should say, for them to enact. So the way I usually look at this is I start right off at the very beginning um, and we start by packing their hand luggage and we like to give advice around, okay, first task of the day here, and this might be a document we give them out, it might be packing hand luggage, what are we looking to include? So we'll make sure that every athlete traveling will have sufficient, they'll pack some electrolytes, they'll have to buy their water once they get through security, it won't be allowed through with a couple of liters of water, uh, but they'll pack some additional electrolytes, we'll get them to pack some chewing gum, we'll get them to pack some hand gel, their compression garments, as well as some meals that they might look to consume during travel, some meals and snacks. And that's the very first thing we'd start off at. We'd just say, look, what do we need in, our, in the bag? Because if we don't have it there when we get on the plane, we won't be able to use it. Then we'd look at the next stage would very much be in the airport. So what are our key considerations for, for you when you're in the airport, or the athlete when they're in the airport? And we'd look at, again, food provision. So we'd, I'd try to identify in advance what are our preferred restaurants and what are our preferred options from the menus at those restaurants? Or are we going to bring our own food with us? And if so, are we going to eat as a team? Or if it's an individual athlete, you know, where might they eat? Or just to actually chill out and have a bit of headspace as well. One tip we'll always give any athlete traveling is to avoid new foods when they are traveling. It's not the time to experiment or, or try new things. Stick to familiar foods. Again, it's already high risk. We don't need to add in additional risk factors on top of that. Um, and then in the airport, as people are going towards their terminals, we'll always say, look, whatever watch you have on, change the time to the local time at your destination uh, and just try get on time as soon as possible to try help. In particular, if you're jumping through multiple time zones, try help your body adjust. So get your watch on the, the time of your destination and just start to adjust your eating and your sleeping and your light exposure um, to that time. And it's very simple. Uh, it's a very, very simple tip, but I actually find it really effective. Even I've been involved in a lot of travel myself recently. That's the one thing I'll always make sure I do. Um, and it does set me up nicely. Then we look at the next stage would very much be the in-flight phase. Now this can vary greatly depending on how far the travel is. Are you just going you know, an hour to somewhere or are you going multiple hours through multiple time zones? Um, but we'll look at different strategies within the flight. So if somebody's going through multiple time zones and we're looking to take into consideration jet lag, we will start to adjust their exposure to light. So we might advise them if they want to watch movies, there's probably a better time of the flight to watch the movies. And then a certain time that we might want them to shut off the screen. Uh, they might actually even wear some, some glasses and avoid their phones um, to avoid blue light emissions. Um, we'll also look at some strategies in flight as well at specifically aiming to reduce the incidence of picking up an upper respiratory tract infection. And for that, we'd be very on top of their hydration. We'd look to set some hydration and fluid guidelines. And we'd look at including those electrolytes that we packed in our hand luggage into a certain number of the drinks during the flight. Uh, we know that on a plane, because it is recycled air, that sort of breath by breath, we will lose a little bit of moisture from the lungs. So we just, we are conscious that we need to stay on top of that. And that, it, you know, even if they complain about, oh, I'm going to the toilet every, 
you know, or every hour or so, or a bit more frequently than they might be used to, you know, that's fine. That's, that's a sign that they're keeping hydrated on the flight, so it never worries me. Um, we'll also look at, like I said before, the actual meal provision. Have we planned and prepared our own meals and snacks in advance? And that's a big one for me. I'll never rely on plain food. I haven't been on any flight where I've gone, you know, that food was fantastic. Now, I've never flown first or business class, so maybe I'm missing a trick there. Um, but certainly down at the back in economy or, or cattle class, I would, I would always look to bring on my own food and snacks and, and we'd advise athletes to do the same and sp- send out specific recipes in advance or provide options uh, that, for meals that they could have purchased in the airport. Um, again, we'd also look at other strategies to improve some of their sleep. Um, so we might look, depending on what time they are trying to get to sleep at or if we're trying to keep them awake, we might use either some, some tart cherry or we might use caffeine to try to keep them awake or, or help them get to sleep. And depending on what their schedule is and where they're traveling to, we'd make sure we have a, a wide provision of hand gels and make sure that they're on top of just their, their hand gel practices, again, to reduce any risk factors there. But we would, I'd massively encourage any practitioner to, to take a multidisciplinary approach. And I know a lot of the sports scientists and strength and conditioning coaches will have advised their athletes to be wearing compression garments during their flight. So any messages that we can reinforce in any of the resources we provide, or if we're in the flight and we're going around and we're checking on athletes or giving them a nudge, certainly making sure they're on, they're on top of their practices there. They'd be some of my main my main protocols in flight and then when we get off the plane i think a trick a lot of a lot of people forget or a lot of athletes will tend to forget is like oh i've arrived in let's say i'm going to shanghai i've arrived in shanghai i'm here now there might be additional taxi journeys bus journeys once you land and get off the other side so you know is there meal provision that needs to be taken into consideration for that is it a long journey is it a short journey have did we need to bring extra fluid or buy extra fluid on the plane to provide athletes with when we get off the plane um, for that, that extra or that last leg of the journey. Then finally, once they're there and we're sort of looking at day one and two and, uh, that we're adjusting, I'd like to work very closely with the strength and conditioning, um, sports science and physio departments to provide some, some guidelines on how best they can adjust. So what type of exercise is gonna be better um, depending on the duration of the travel? Are they gonna be exposed to very light or some slightly heavier? recovery uh, protocols and again how our foods can complement that or how our menu provision might complement that so they're the different sections I'd look to break it down to really but I would advise every practitioner that it's, this shouldn't be you know a one pager this is very much a you know we might have a small slide or tip sheet for each phase of the journey and it should be very easy for the athlete to do it shouldn't be any additional stress um, and just focusing on those one or two key behaviors during each part of the journey, I, I find certainly particularly effective with the athletes I've worked with, as opposed to providing a general, here's all the things you can do. Let's, let's work from it. Let's, let's pack our hand luggage. One or two things I really want you to focus on. Let's get to the airport. What are the one or two things that are the big focus here? On the plane, off the plane, and then adjusting. And then I think you've got a very comprehensive plan with working with athletes and there's plenty of detail there without going overkill. And you are just looking specifically at, you know, what is occurring in a certain environment? What are the key behaviors that need to be enacted in that environment?
And is there anything from your PhD in behavior change that you've been able to draw on to help you in guiding athletes? Yeah, I suppose it's the PhD in, in behavior and the dynamics of behavior change has been really interesting for me. And it's, I, I really think it's really added to my practice. Um, it's given me a much more rounded approach to, to working with athletes. And, and when we look specifically at travel, um, you know, I think things like situated learning theory, which proposes that, that learning tasks are, takes place in the same context in which it is applied, typically a real world setting, is, is really applicable. So when we start to look at athletes that are traveling and going through these different phases, that's why we've sort of broken it down into its component parts. We're looking at enacting these behaviors um, and you know, building our resources out in, to be delivered in the context that the behavior is actually being applied. So for me, really, that's the biggest thing is actually looking at those components. And then when it comes to the behaviors, trying to be as specific as possible. So for each phase, select what behavior is most important. You know, like, as I said before, it doesn't, behaviors don't exist in a vacuum. Um, they exist within a context and a system of behaviors. And we need to be aware of that, the external influence and factors that go on, things that might take away from what we're trying to achieve. Then we actually need to specify that target behavior and say, actually, what, what does this athlete need for this to occur? Um, and then we will start to build out the intervention from there once we've actually understood the behavior and done a bit of a behavioral analysis of, can we make sure this is as easy as possible um, is there anything that they're missing that we need to get in place, whether that's, it could be some additional education, some training, um, with an intervention content, for example, we look at different ways of breaking the content down. For, so for some content, we'll actually look at, at modeling it specifically. So in the airport, we break it down and we look at arrival time to the time you get to the gate and we look at it as a timeline and we build a model out. Whereas packing hand luggage, it might be very simple. It might be you know, what actually goes into a bag and, and come up with a clever graphic of everything going into a bag or a small video and vary the content based on that. Content does need to be engaging. Uh, and we do need to listen to athletes as well. I, I find it great when we actually, when I build some resources and I, you know, I'm very fortunate to work with a high number of athletes that I can go to a few of them first and go, go to some of the senior players or senior athletes and say, look, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? And they go, actually, I really like that. Or mm, I don't think that'll sit too well with the squad. Is there anything we could do to change this? And, and really valuing the athlete's opinion um, and listening to the athletes a bit more. That, that's invaluable for me as I'm building these. So um, that would be the biggest things I'd take from it. And you know, fortunately enough as well, the use of mobile phones now has also provided some additional, um, an additional way for athletes to learn. So I suppose mobile learning, it can be accessed anywhere, anytime. Now I'm not saying you need to rely on a push notification being sent at the last minute, but if there is something that's really key or important and you can give a, a player or an athlete a nudge on a WhatsApp group or deliver, re-deliver some of this information as they go through the process, that can also be really, really beneficial. David, your brother Paul Dunn is a professional golfer on the European Tour. How might his travel demands differ from that of a basketballer in the NBA? Yeah, I suppose professional golf in general it would be very different. Um, you wouldn't be involved in many back-to-back -back fixtures from day to day. However, what you would find is that there's a lot of Sunday-to-Sunday -Sunday travel. So most golf competitions occur between Thursday and Sunday, uh, and a lot of the athletes or players find themselves traveling on Sunday night to a new destination. Now, these flights tend to be a lot longer than what you find in the NBA. Athletes tend to travel uh, a much greater distance. Some, you know, some competitions, they might not arrive until early or mid-Monday morning, uh, and they'll suffer a potential loss of sleep on that flight. 
depending on how they are sleeping on planes, were they able to actually nod off or if they're a nervous flyer, that might be something that could really have a negative impact. Um, as well as the fact that they're by, theirself, by themselves, sorry, as well. Um, they might be traveling with the caddy or the caddy might be traveling out at a later date. So there's, there's different considerations from that perspective that need to be taken in. Um, taken in. And more work probably needs to be done around actually adjusting your body clock. You tend to move to a lot more time zones, so be specific about light exposure. Um, you can't start to adjust your expo or your sleep time on a on a Friday or a Saturday for a Sunday flight because you're competing on Friday or Saturday. You've generally got to do the best you can on the Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday to adjust your body clock to be ready to compete on Thursday. Um, and there's, I mean, some of the some of the travel can really they can be quite challenging. I mean, recently on the European tour, um, there was a competition where they traveled from, from Shanghai to Antalya and Turkey. Um, that was, a, it was an overnight flight. Players, some players might be involved in a pro-am on the Wednesday, which means Tuesday's their main practice day. Now, if they've only arrived off the plane on Monday morning and they're trying to adjust then, and then they've got one key day of practice before they can compete on Thursday, a lot needs to be done to try get their bodies right for competition. So with regards to how much sleep they might need to catch up on without negatively impacting sleep that night, uh, their access to, to physios and some soft tissue treatment and the recovery protocols um, to help their bodies come around a little bit quicker. So, I mean, from that perspective, there's definitely some differences. With regards to in-flight strategies, the only difference really would be that a lot of the durations are longer. So when it comes to meal provision, we might need more. When it comes to fluid provision, we might recommend, you know, again, greater intakes. But with regards to the basics, they, they don't really change. Uh, with regards to the planning and preparation, they don't really change. What tends to change is, is the context and the environment the athletes are in and the duration of the flight itself. And on top of all of that, when, when athletes are traveling from you know, such different destinations, like I said, you could be traveling from, from China to Turkey, to South Africa, to Dubai, and um, then on to Hong Kong again. I mean, I think that was the last, that's the last five weeks of the European tour. The exposure to the actual, to actual different foods um, and different food hygiene standards, athletes need to be educated on. So what are, their, what are their safe options in these different countries? What are their go-tos? The worst thing you wanna do is, um, or the worst case scenario could be, you go to the wrong restaurant or you choose the wrong food and you pick up a GI and despite all that travel, you're unfortunately picked up a vomiting and diarrhea bug and are no longer able to compete by the time the competition actually comes around. So trying to negate those those potential speed bumps is really important and try bring the athlete up to speed on on all the potential risk factors, but maybe don't phrase it as a, in terms of trying to put the fear of God into them. Um, maybe phrase it a little bit more on, look, here are here are our safe places and, and sort of where we can guarantee as opposed to, oh God, you must avoid this at all costs. There, although there will be a few of those. Finally, what advice would you give to a clinician working with an athlete who's facing a busy travel schedule? I think the number one thing I'd say to any clinician is try walk through the process themselves, try break it down into its component parts, and then try select and specify what are the key things they want to occur in each of those individual components. Um, and what are the key things that might actually influence that? Whether, like we said before, it might be the emotional state following a game, or the accessibility, just take all of those into, co into consideration and, and identify your one or two key things. And then Dave, two tips you might give to the athlete themselves. Two things for a traveling athlete, if I was to say, 
um, w- would make a, a big difference in my opinion would be first of all, be specific when you're packing your hand luggage, make sure you are packing, like I said, your hand gel, your chewing gums, your meals, your snacks, some additional electrolytes, anything that you think you may or may not need, your compression garments um, for the duration of that flight um, or that travel day, whatever, however long it might be. And then the second thing would be, as soon as you get on the plane, wherever you're traveling to, I'd look to, to change the time on my watch to the time at the destination and just get on time as soon as possible. Thank you very much for your time, David. You've been listening to BJSM podcast with David Dunn and Sean Carmody. If you want to listen to more BJSM podcasts on nutrition, check out the app where my colleague Liam West has now categorised each podcast according to topic.